New Zealand has a methamphetamine problem. We are known around the world as a country with a high rate of meth use. Benedict Collins is a New Zealand political reporter and has covered meth, also called P, and the problems it causes for years. He says that well-thought-out harm reduction plans in New Zealand have been ignored, and he traces the flow of meth production from Southeast Asia to our shores exposes the hidden world of white-collar users here and asks, how did tough-on-crime become dumb-on-drugs? His new book is called Mad on Meth, and Benedict Collins joins me now. Hi there. Afternoon, Jesse. Hi. Thanks for your time today, and thanks for all the work and energy you've put into this book. What is meth, and what does it do to your body? So uh, methamphetamine was uh, invented kind of by accident um, over a, over a century ago, um, and basically what it does is it's a, um, a powerful central nervous stimulant, and it releases lots of dopamine into your brain. So when, when you take methamphetamine, it releases all this dopamine. It gives you an incredible burst of energy. Uh, uh, you know, you, you kind of feel really fantastic for a while. Uh, it takes quite a long time to wear off. But yeah, the, the problem with methamphetamine is when people start doing this repeatedly, right? If you're constantly putting huge amounts of dopamine into your brain, uh, that's when people start to sort of um, go off the rails somewhat. That's when you start to get, you know, huge problems with um, harm and dependence and addiction. Um, yeah, so it's a highly addictive addictive substance. I think what what we do know um, from surveys that are taken in New Zealand, maybe 40, 50, 60,000 people a year will, will, will try um, pee throughout the course of a year, but most people will only try it once or twice. They won't get you know, hooked on it. It is a much smaller group um, of people who end up getting hooked on methamphetamine. In New Zealand, the Drug Foundation, they've estimated maybe it's about 6,000 to 8,000 people, but hey, for, for those people, you know, life's, life's pretty bleak. Or it can be. Yeah. I mean, some of what we hear is that one time is one time too many. Um, and I'm sure in many ways it is. But do you think that the addictive nature has been overstated? Certainly one uh, person who you talk to in the book, um, one of the top drug cops says he thinks meth is often overhyped, that there are people who can use it, then put it down. What's your view on that, having done the research? I mean, absolutely. The vast, the vast majority of people who try methamphetamine are never going to get hooked on it. Um, over eighty percent of people, you know, according to research here and around the world, you know, are going to try it. They're going to say, "Hey, that was okay," but you know, nothing really to rave about. They're not going to end up getting hooked on methamphetamine. Um, you know, but there are a lot of the messaging around methamphetamine is that it's instantly addictive. Um, you know, just just not even once is one of the big slogans um, around methamphetamine. Um, you know, and that's been done with other drugs as well. Um, it, in the past, like crack cocaine and stuff, it's made out to be instantly um, addictive, and that's just not the case. Is there a typical meth user? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I imagine most people who try methamphetamine are going to be, you know, someone who tries it at a party, Um you know, gets off it, it tries it once or twice, you know, but they don't, they just don't think it's that great. It does take a, a long, long time to wear off. So people, you know, when, when they try it, you might feel high for a few hours, but then it's going to, it's really going to linger. It doesn't, you know, you're going to find it hard to, hard to get to sleep that night, even though the kind of the initial um, energy boost and, and the good feelings that came with it have, have long gone. So I think for a lot of people, it doesn't work, but you know, for, for some people, obviously they're going to have enormous problems with it. 
So you mentioned it was, you know, maybe a century ago it was invented. Why is it so widespread widespread now? What's going on? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting, right? So most people don't realise that methamphetamine was, like, legal in New Zealand in, in, in the 50s and 60s. It was um, a prescribed drug for weight loss and a few other conditions as well. And it was mainly prescribed um, to middle-aged women for weight loss. Um, and it, it wasn't just uh, methamphetamine. Amphetamines were really widely available. As part of the research, I was going back um, through New Zealand uh, newspaper records, and, like, amphetamine use in New Zealand especially was, um, like, yeah, it, it was wild. Like students were, get, you know, just going and uh, getting it to study. You had um, like um, the, the Waikato uh, Cycling Association was complaining to the national body that just about every cyclist, I think, uh, in the 50s at a national champs w- was taking these what, what had become known as pip pills. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that it was really, really widely used in New Zealand. Then kind of in the in the early 1970s, one of the main manufacturers of, of, of methamphetamine, um, it was sold under the brand name Methadrine. They withdrew it because they were starting to realise quite a few people who were taking it uh, for weight loss were ending up getting hooked. And then, of course, in the early 1970s, the United States was really ramping up its kind of war on drugs talk, and we introduced our Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, and, and then basically amphetamines and methamphetamine they kind of disappeared for a while um and then in the late 1990s methamphetamine like just came back with a vengeance and people had figured out that they could go to the chemist they could buy cold and flu medicine uh and they could um uh, basically with uh, extract the pseudoephedrine in that and then add, add other chemicals to make their own crystal meth um and it really just rocketed in like the very late 1990s early 2000s it came, like Drug surveys in the late 90s, almost no one had tried meth by the early 2000s. You know, a a small percentage of people were taking meth every year, so it really did kind of explode. And then what we saw with methamphetamine in the early 2000s is, you know, it got to the point where a couple of hundred meth labs a year were getting busted by the police. Sometimes they were getting busted, sometimes they were blowing up. Um, But, yeah, there was this huge, almost out of nowhere, people really started picking up on meth and then a big significant change happened and that was when um, John Key in 2009 our former prime minister he banned pseudoephedrine over the counter and that put a pretty big dent in um, people's ability to make um, methamphetamine Mm. to cook it at home basically. So was that good he got that advice from Sir Peter Gluckman I think the chief science officer at the time did that end up being good advice um, then? Well, 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 kind of. I mean, it, it did put a big dent in the um, in the ability of a lot of people to make um, methamphetamine at home. It, it, it stopped a lot of the ram raids on chemists and the robberies of chemists that we'd seen. It, it was um, effective in that way for people who get a common cold. I mean, it's not particularly good because they replaced it with a um, phenylephedrine, which is um, nowhere near as effective at um, reducing uh, cold and flu symptoms. So it was a bit tough on the um, ordinary public. But what happened is what we were doing there, right? We we were kind of following the lead of other countries and really responding restricting access to pseudoephedrine over the counter. And pretty quickly, um, basically, people started turning to um, uh, other parts of the world. And now you've got these, like, warlords in Myanmar who run these super labs. You've got cartels in Mexico um, that run super labs. You've got um, an entire province in Afghanistan um, that has super labs just churning out tons upon tons of methamphetamine. So... 
in 2007, I think we, um, all around the world, they basically confiscated 18 tonnes of meth. In the last couple of years, we've been getting nearly 400 tonnes of meth. So the amount of methamphetamine around the world um, that's been trafficked around the world now has just gone through the roof, partly in, in response to these measures that countries were taking to really restrict the ability of people to access those um, those precursor ingredients to make meth themselves. So there's no shortage of it around in New Zealand. And, but there does seem to be something specific to New Zealand about this problem. Is it true that we are particularly good customers for those international cartels that make meth? No. So, I mean, you often hear politicians say that, like, pee is a really New Zealand problem. And um, I, I was actually chatting um, to a United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime guy um, who works up in um, Bangkok. And he was talking about the situation at the moment in Southeast Asia. Mm. And they are just getting flooded with dirt cheap methamphetamine. Um, like they are intercepting billions of pills. The way they consume meth up there is a little bit different. They, um, it comes in pills, uh, which are like 20% meth and the rest is kind of like caffeine and, and a bit of dye to make the pills um, pretty. But yeah, they're intercepting billions. And he was telling me that it wasn't that long ago that a lot of Southeast Asia, they were kind of predominantly heroin orientated countries. And now country after country up there, uh, they're just all turning into meth markets. Meth consumption in Southeast Asia is just through the roof. Um, but they don't really do wastewater testing and stuff like up, like like we do here. So it's you know it's harder to compare. But pretty consistently, our surveys show you know between one and two percent of New Zealanders will try meth a year. Up in Southeast Asia, I mean, it's through the roof. Okay, that's interesting. eh? that's an interesting sort of. We call it a myth um, that it's a particularly New Zealand problem. Nonetheless, it is a problem. What have we done wrong in addressing it then in the last 10 or 20 years since it's been a really big deal in New Zealand? Well, we've taken a series of measures, right? Like we made it an A-class drug in the early 2000s um, when it was really taking off to increase the penalties for people. Um, Then we had John Key's uh, measures around reducing uh, you know, or um, getting rid of pseudoephedrine. Um, and, and that was effective um, for a few years. It did put a, a good dent. But then this this global trade has just burst up, right? Um, in, in terms of, you know, we've, we've locked up thousands and thousands of people for selling this drug, for, um, for, for cooking it, for distributing it, for using it. Um, and now there's more of it here than ever before. So, I mean, you do have to start questioning, is there something else that we could be doing that would be more effective than, you know, just trying to wage a war against methamphetamine? And one of the things that the um, uh, Helen Clark and the Drug Foundation did a report a little while ago, and other countries have done this and it, 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 it with other drugs especially, but also with methamphetamine. And whether you set up some sort of government safe supply um, of amphetamines or methamphetamine to, to, to our very heavy users, right? Uh, not to you know, carte blanche out, out, for, out for everyone in the country. But for those people who, who are really seriously addicted to methamphetamine, if, if you could roll out some sort of safe supply where the government supplies it, you get them out of the black market, you get them away from the gangs who are heavily, heavily involved in the, you know, importation, distribution of methamphetamine and all the violence they bring with them. You know, programs like that overseas have been shown when you take people out of the black market and you supply them a substance gradually over time, the use does does decrease, but you also, when, when you take them out of the black market, you reduce 
the whole need for them to be committing committing a lot of a lot of crime and stuff like that in order to source their meth in the first place. It could be interesting to try something like that here, but I think that the difficulty would be with it, right? Our wastewater testing shows that where meth consumption is highest are a lot of really rural, um, sort of economically deprived towns, almost all around the North Island. Um, so geographically, it's quite what um quite quite spread out I, I think it could be hard to run a um you know a safe supply program mm. like this given it's not all concentrated in a big city but whether or not it would be worth worth a try you know because what we are doing at the moment you know arguably isn't particularly successful yes and you write that you've lost count of the number of times you've heard stories of desperate people being told there's no help available for their family member who's experiencing meth-induced psychosis. So we haven't talked much about the impacts, but but they are very real on users and their families. Oh, absolutely, right? Like, I mean, not, um, there's a group down in Porirua called People. Um, I spoke to them and also to Bravehearts, um, an organisation that works um, with, the, with the families of people who are addicted to methamphetamine who are based in Tauranga, but they both these organisations, you know, they run um, they run sessions and, and help groups all around the North Island. Yeah, and it's bleak, man. Like they, like the the amount of demand they have for their services, uh, they they're kind of constantly battling to get any sort of funding from the government. Um, people was successful there, but yeah, a, a lot of people are doing it really tough. And, and all the time, you talk to people, and they say, you know, when they call up government health um, services or hotlines trying to get urgent help, you know, for people who are in psychosis. You know, often, you know, the phone just rings and rings. No one even picks up. It's pretty pretty bleak out there for for a lot of people who are, you know, hooked on this pretty addictive drug. In the meantime, the people who are making pee, um, I mean, they're, they're using a lot of chemistry. Um, I think you've described them as innovators. Uh, innovators and problem solvers. Is the chemistry getting more and more complicated? It's fascinating, right? It's, I'm not a chemist myself, so I was doing a lot of research into this, and there's a, yeah. a lot of different chemical names and stuff like that. But basically what's happening is you will get companies in the south of China that set up, and they, they'll basically produce just one chemical. And you'll have lots of different companies doing this, and then they'll send it all into the Golden Triangle, mainly to Myanmar. I imagine quite a few of the chemicals are going to... Um, uh, down to Mexico as well, but basically they will they'll send these sort of ingredients uh, piece by piece up into uh, Myanmar, and they'll have, they'll have chemists there who'll add it all together um, and basically make their recipes for methamphetamine. Because a lot of the precursor chemicals are banned, right, by um, international agencies to try and combat um, the manufacture of methamphetamine. But they'll just take it back a few steps from there, and they're constantly getting getting around the rules basically and and avoiding detection and it's a real problem um just the sheer number of like uh di- different chemicals that are coming out of um out of southern china and, and into the um golden triangle but also you can actually make it just from the ephedra plant as well and that's what's happening um just a few years ago in afghanistan they um uh, Basically, they figured out that a lot of ephedra grows wild in the mountains there, and they'd send people up to um, harvest it, and they'd bring it down to this big uh, bazaar in Afghanistan. And, um, yep, basically, they've got an entire province there that's um, pretty much dedicated to now to making methamphetamine. What do you hope to achieve with this book, Benedict? I, I, 
was kind of um the publishers came to me because i've done a lot of work back when i worked at radio new zealand looking at the um meth testing uh industry and mm. how that kind of um got out of control somewhat leading to um you know, several thousand people being evicted from housing New Zealand homes um, for a millionth of a gram of methamphetamine and all. So, yeah, I was hoping to bring, kind of, tell the tale of the evolution of methamphetamine. I don't think many people would have known, you know, how that it was legal that not, not that long ago, that it wasn't really a problem here. And then, yeah, and then kind of trace that from it being legal to illegal to the... Um, yeah, to, to the domestic meth labs and and the um, the evictions that we saw around um, tiny traces of um, methamphetamine to now where it's just like wow it's you know it's absolutely turbocharged the meth trade around the world and I mean just this year we've had several ta- uh, several um, deliveries of meth that have been record busting in New Zealand um, nearly three quarters of a ton on both of them you know it was twenty years ago we were finding. You know, we're finding a, a kilo or two coming into the country a year, and now we're we're getting hundreds and hundreds of kilos. And, and if the police are finding hundreds and hundreds of kilos, you can bet your bottom dollar, you know, vastly more is actually getting into the country. Well, thank you for the energy you've put into this book and the hard work. Great to have you back on RNZ again, temporarily at least. Benedict Collins, Mad on Meth is the book, and thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Jesse. Cheers.